welcome. Uh, so today we've uh, got a video recording with Stuart Daniel, Family Law Solicitor here at Manda Hadley. Uh, hi Stuart, thanks for joining us. Afternoon Joe. pleasure. So we're going to be talking today, um, Stuart, about finances in divorce. Yeah. Um, so can I can I just kind of dive straight into this and, and say, what's the best way to deal with financial issues uh, when you enter into the divorce process? And then we'll get into some nitty gritty. Sure. Um, I think in most cases, Joe, the best way has to be negotiations between separating couples or spouses, um, different ways that can be done. But ultimately, I, I think for most couples, court proceedings would be a last resort. It's certainly more expensive, time consuming and stressful. So, yeah, the best way is always to try and negotiate um, between yourselves with professional support where required. And now you mentioned negotiate there. So, could you perhaps expand on that a little bit and just give us some ideas about the best way to actually handle that kind of negotiation? Of course. Um, I'd say there's no right or wrong. Some couples will negotiate between themselves, um, where parts are very amicable, perhaps where they're putting children first, they'll be able to discuss the finances on a one-to-one. Sometimes they have support from mutual friends, uh, neutral family members. In other cases, they'll have professional support in terms of mediators or solicitors, um, which is where we can come in, of course. The bedrock has to be financial disclosure, um, as we put it, cards on the table. If you're going to have meaningful negotiations, you have to have financial disclosure as a prerequisite. And that's the process that solicitors would adopt and mediators also. OK, so based on that, then, um, Stuart, will the courts automatically endorse any agreement that you reach through that process? No, they won't. Um, have to smile there. Uh, no is the short answer. Just to bore you slightly, in recent years, we've had um, a move away from centralised courts. So for years locally, we'd be issuing at, uh, say, Coventry or Birmingham. Nowadays, we lodge applications online and they get heard by judges all around the country. So it could be one day it's dealt with by Liverpool or um, uh, Bodmin, for example, all around the country. Uh, what we tend to find is more judges we're not familiar with and uh, they tend to raise more questions. So often when we lodge a consent application between um, separating couples, judges will sort of raise queries if they don't think it's fair, for example, if they're not satisfied one person's had legal advice. Um, so in the majority of cases, yes, orders will get rubber stamped by judges, but not always. Often they do get queried and we have to resolve those queries before they go any further forward. Okay. I'm just going to get into some detail here, Stuart, because I think there are some very specific questions that I know you get asked um, from clients that are embarking on this process. So I'm just going to talk about property to start off with. Um, so what should somebody do if they're worried that their their soon-to-be former spouse might try to sell the home, uh, potentially, I suppose, make them homeless? Yeah. Um, the first protocol is to make sure the property's in joint names, Obviously, in most cases, people know the answer to that straight away, but sometimes people are in doubt if it's been put in joint names or not. If it's jointly owned, um, the property cannot be sold without the consent and knowledge of both parties to the marriage. Um, if they try to pull a fast one effectively and get it on the market, it can go so far, but once a buyer comes forward, um, they will obtain copies of the title deeds. They'll see there's a joint owner and they'll have to get their consent first. When practice, that would grind to a halt. Um, in case where it's in one party's sole name, the advice is to register a home rights notice, which is a fairly straightforward application to the land registry, which effectively gives notice to the world at large, uh, potential mortgage lenders, third party buyers, transferees, that the other spouse has an interest, a right of occupation 
in practical terms, it would freeze the sale process. So it wouldn't go any further without notifying the spouse of the intention to sell or remortgage. So um, that's always the first step we would take to protect someone's interest, where it's the marital home. Okay. And do you kind of have to tell your soon-to-be former spouse about all of your assets and income? I presume you have to declare everything. You would do, yes. Um, when parties go mm. through court proceedings, there's a, a sort of requisite form that needs to be completed, a form E. Um, the front contains very clear warning notices. You must be honest. You must not um, withhold assets. If you do, it's potential contempt of court. It's potentially breach of the Fraud Act. Um, very serious consequences follow from those um, uh, those sort of breaches. So the principle is be full and frank. You've got to have open negotiations. I often say to people, if you don't give full and frank disclosure and you get caught out later on, the whole thing can be undone. So it's important to do it fairly, do it openly and honestly. And uh, that way you can get a fair settlement to both parties. And just drilling down a little bit on that, Stuart, what assets would you sort of normally have to disclose? Essentially, entire financial history, Joe. So it's your property, your capital, uh, savings, investments, bank accounts, liabilities, credit cards, debts, high purchase agreements, pensions, income, um, the lot. So it, it all gets looked at as part of a divorce and uh, judges can in, impose um, uh, sales of properties. They can order transfers of assets between spouses. Um, they can share pensions. And in some cases, they can order spousal maintenance as well. And I guess just because you've disclosed it doesn't mean that it's going to be an equal split necessarily. No, um, that, that's a question I get asked quite a lot. Um, is it always the case, Stuart, it's 50-50? No, it isn't, is the short answer. Um, in many cases, that will be seen as a fair outcome. We have this uh, concept of the article of equality, 50-50 is a measure, but it's always been an end measure, not a starting point. Um, courts will look at a range of factors to decide what's fair, length of marriage, any children, um, in some cases, contributions, depending on the length of marriage, lots of factors to be addressed. So, no, it's not always 50-50. If it was, there'd be no need for courts. And I'll be doing something else, frankly. OK. And what happens in the case where you you kind of you feel that somebody's to blame for the breakdown of the marriage? Is that taken into account when it comes to finances? Uh, very rarely. So um, just to expand upon that, since April this year, the divorce law has changed and we no longer have a fault-based system. Um, before April, someone could start divorce on grounds of um, a person's adultery or unreasonable behaviour. That's now gone. But in financial cases, usually courts will um, rule out conduct as being raised. So people may have said, for example, well, um, you know, he had an affair or, um, you know, he wasn't very responsive with his money. I should get more of the assets because of that. And judges tend to say, well, no, that's not going to be relevant consideration. Conduct doesn't apply. But in stream cases, it will. So, for example, someone had squandered assets or hidden money away. Um, an example I saw a few years ago um, was a client who, or rather an opponent, who was transferring £100,000 to a relative midway through divorce, which smacked of an attempt to hide it from his, his wife at the time. That sort of conduct, yes, it does have a bearing. But in most cases, no, it won't. OK. And, and what happens in that situation where... Um you know, one person's stayed at home for the majority of the marriage, perhaps looking after children, etc. Is that taken into account as well? Because obviously they won't have built up as much yes. assets potentially. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the courts look at contributions in the wider sense. It's not purely financial contributions. Um, so if I have a client come to me and says, I paid the mortgage all these years, 
um, my pension accrued before we got married. Um, you can raise the sorts of arguments for negotiation purposes. Sometimes they will have legs. Um, but as far as the court's concerned, they start on the premise that um, one party's contribution towards the family and supporting the spouse's career and raising children is equal to financial contributions. So that's the way it tends to work in the majority of cases. And how does that work in terms of maintenance and entitlement to maintenance? Maintenance is um, a tricky one. So um, in simple terms, whether a children or has to be payments of maintenance, um, if parties can't agree, then the CMS, the Child Maintenance Service, will ultimately get involved and, and, and specify how much maintenance should be paid for the benefits of children. Um, in some cases, the courts can say in addition to paying child maintenance, you should be paying spousal maintenance as well. I would say that's more rare these days. Um, 20, 30 years ago, it was perhaps more common to have ongoing spousal maintenance after divorce. And it could go on for years and years after parties divorced and uh, went their separate ways. Whereas nowadays, the courts have a duty to try and impose a clean break now and if not when. Um, for my sins, I've done this job for about 16 years. Um, I can recall only a handful of cases where there's been ongoing maintenance. It tends to be long marriage cases where there is vast disparity between the income of one party compared to the other one or whether a particular needs to address. But um, in most cases, I think it's fair to say, certainly in the Midlands, that uh, clean breaks are are favoured. And um, what about pensions? How, how are those taken into account? The most common way these days is a pension sharing order. Um, it essentially works by way of splitting a pension or pensions at the time of divorce, which would give the party with a weaker um, pension provision a greater chunk for their retirement. It gives them an investment, essentially. People often mistake a pension share for a lump sum. They don't get a lump sum of cash straight away. They get an investment that they can invest until they're uh, of pensionable age and they draw upon the benefit then. Hmm. Um, when parties reach the age of 55, they can take some cash tax free. Um, but generally, if a couple's divorcing, say in their 30s or 40s, a pension share won't give them any cash to buy a house or replace a car. Now it gives an investment for their future retirement years. And in all of this, Stuart, um, can you agree on the division of sort of property and assets before you actually start the divorce process? Is, is there a le kind of legal route to do that before you actually embark on it? Absolutely. Yeah, there's no right or wrong. Some, <laughs> some couples start divorce and then they approach finances. Some um, go the other way around. There's no right or wrong. The message I would give is to say, well, um, be very careful when you start to hand monies over, because if you reach an agreement but there are no divorce proceedings underway you cannot get it legally binding the way to achieve certainty is to um, have your financial agreement in place start divorce proceedings excuse me once you've got your conditional order of divorce a judge can consider the agreement as an order and make it legally binding um, in some cases people put the agreement into place properties transferred for example money's changed hands um, and then there may be a delay before divorce gets underway and one person tries to change their mind. So I always say to people, unless you're opposed to divorce for moral or religious reasons, um, or if you think there's a chance of reconciliation, if it really is um, over, then the best thing to do for financial security and peace of mind is to get your divorce underway so you can make your agreement into a legally binding court order. Understand. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Stuart. That's been a Bit of a whistle-stop tour through there. So if uh, if you're watching this video or listening to this podcast and you want to know more, um, just contact Stuart through the Manda Hadley website at mandahadley.co.uk and I'm sure Stuart would be happy to, uh, to take your calls. Thanks, Stuart. Really helpful. Thanks, Joe.